Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Ethan Ennels and I'm a health journalist, which means I spend my life asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week we're asking, does the NHS have a sexism problem? As ever, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment, tweet us at MedMinefield. I started my periods when I was 15 and um, I would bleed 11, 12 days and I'd say about eight or nine of them were very heavy. I would throw up on the first day at least once or twice. Um, I would pass out at least once or twice. I'd be wrapped around a toilet and I would still go to school and I was very good at school, you know, very academic and musical. Um, and that lasted for the whole of my life. And I, whenever I went to the doctor, I was told it was normal. And how, how much of that time were you told that this was just a period, this was normal, this was... 32 years. That was the BBC Breakfast presenter Nagaman Chetty talking at a parliamentary inquiry last month where she outlined how for decades her medical issues were ignored by the NHS. And what's so shocking about this story is the fact that it was only 30 years later, in fact, last November, that Nagamanchetti was finally diagnosed with adenomyosis. It's a poorly understood condition which causes cells from the womb lining to grow deep within the muscles of the uterus. It affects about one in every 10 women mainly over 30, and doctors still have no idea what causes it. And she goes on to talk about it in more detail. She talks about how she would go to see the GP and they would say, suck it up. And then she added, when women do try to speak about these issues, they get labelled troublemakers. We are speaking today about how widespread this issue is across the NHS and the numbers don't lie. Studies show that women with dementia are more likely to receive worse medical care. Women are forced to wait longer to receive painkillers and are less likely to receive painkillers than men because they are not judged to be at the same level of pain. Women are even more likely to be misdiagnosed with a heart attack than men and as a result are more likely to die of a heart attack within 30 days than men. It's an issue that the government have acknowledged and they say they're doing something to fix. Last year, a women's health strategy was launched, which promised £25 into researching this issue and trying to address it. But experts say there's a lot more work which needs to be done yet. One of those experts is, in fact, one of our very own regular columnists, Dr Philippa Kay, a GP who specialises in women's health. Dr Kay, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before you joined us, we were just listening to Nagamin Chetty talk about her own experiences trying to seek help on the NHS and being constantly rebuffed for decades before she was actually eventually diagnosed. Just how widespread across the NHS is this problem for women? I don't think it's just the NHS. I think it's globally that this is a really common problem and it's not even just with regards to areas that you might traditionally call women's health being around the reproductive system um, but about the health of women which is women's health in general. Um, So I think it's really common and I think that 
it's so common and ingrained that often doctors and patients may not even be aware of it. Can you give me an example? Well, I think that in society there is this idea which is that to be a woman is to accept pain somehow. That periods are painful, that childbirth is painful, that um, you know, that that pregnancy might be uncomfortable, that breastfeeding might be painful. Um, you know, that there is this sort of this idea that women are just supposed to put up with, with any of that. Um, and whatever sort of ideas are prevalent within society will affect both doctors and patients. Um and, and it's not that doctors are immune to it. Um, so I think that there are some things that also that, that patients put up with. Um, and I have patients who um, think that it's normal to miss school every month or to not be able to leave the bathroom or to leave their house every month for three days because their periods are so heavy. Um, and that it hasn't even occurred to them that there might be something that we can do about that because they've accepted it as normal as well. So I think that it affects everyone if that makes sense yeah it does and do you think in the nhs there are routes that women can take if they are rebuffed by one doctor is it possible for them to go see perhaps a female consultant who might be more sympathetic it's interesting that you say should they see a female consultant that's the first thing is that i am not sure that we have evidence yet to say that um the gender of your doctor makes a difference to your health outcome with regards to, for example, women's pain. I might not I might be wrong, but I'm not aware of data that suggests that. And anecdotally, I have some female patients who are more comfortable with a woman and I have some who are more comfortable with a man. And one of the reasons that someone gave me recently was um, well, my male um, gynecologist doesn't know what it's like um, at all to pee himself when he coughs um, he's just really sympathetic and that she was worried that if she saw um, a woman that, that that person might just go squeeze a little bit harder you'll be fine um, that doesn't happen to me now obviously doctors don't try and put their own personal experience onto their patients but that was that particular patient's concern um, if you are concerned that you aren't getting the treatment or the help that you need, you can ask to see another doctor. And I think that that starts in primary care as well, um, because often people will say people will have um, large multi-group, multi-doctor practices now, and that the days of a single-handed doctor um, aren't quite the same as they used to be when it was one doctor and that was your family doctor. Now there's you know, going to be more of us. And so that you might say, okay, well, I'd like to go and see the doctor um, that's got extra qualifications in women's health, or who is the person that normally does women's health. But as I said before, women's health is not just about the reproductive system and breasts. So we know, for example, that women have different symptoms of heart attacks and things like that. And women have traditionally been excluded from trials because our periods make us complicated. Okay, let's be complicated. <laughs> but if it's complicated for a trial, it's complicated in life and we need to find out about it, right? Is that why you think there is some level of medical sexism seen even in female doctors? Is it originating from research? So there's a lack of research um, and the vast majority of research into women's health is, um, most of it is about women's cancers, um, so gynecological cancers and breast cancer, um, which can affect men as well. Um, and, and there is not enough research into the impact of being a woman 
on everything else. And without the evidence, doctors are more likely to not know if that makes sense. Um, And even if you take something as simple as how do we work out about drug side effects and risks and benefits? Those are worked out on a 70 kilo man. Um, That's not the same as a woman. And it's not even if you took a 70 kilo woman, would it be the same? It's not the same. Um, And so we have to do a lot, lot more research so that we have the evidence and the evidence then changes practice. But what it feels like is that we're right at the beginning and the beginning is recognizing a need. So it feels like we're at the bit where we recognize the need and now we have to go and get the evidence. What can we do to fix the problem then? Um, so the first bit is is talking about it and recognising that there is a problem. And even something as, as, not as simple, but something like the gender pain gap, which we've had evidence for a little while now, but actually you need we need to talk about it so that it becomes um, something that both doctors and patients are aware of. Sorry, doctor, can you talk us through the gender pain gap a bit? Oh, so women's pain, I don't have the numbers um, off the top of my head, but women's pain is taken less seriously. They're less likely to get given painkillers. Um, they're less likely to be given as many painkillers as they need. Um, and um, and there's lots of reasons for that, but essentially it's that women, women's pain is taken is taken to be less less it's not less important but it's just taken less seriously than a male's pain um why do you think that is well some of it i think goes back to pain is part of being a woman which again isn't right um but also that this idea that women are hardy because they're used to pain oh women have been giving babe giving birth for years come on you can do it sort of thing um the fact that you've been doing something for a long time as 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 a gender doesn't mean that you have to put up with doing it painfully. Um, and some of it is really quite embedded. Um, you know, that, that women, there was a report recently that women were given a comb to squeeze during labour as a form of pain relief. There, there was a set of Gosh. nice guidelines that said that women should have sterile water injected into their back during um, labour for pain relief. And even if you inject sterile water into somebody, it hurts. That's the first thing. And the quality of evidence for it is not great. And in other parts of the world, they actively say, don't do that. So how do we end up in a situation where we have that? It's a good question. It's, I mean, it's a good question. I imagine some of it is because it's about cost. So injection of sterile water um, will be, and this is this is my theory. I don't know exactly how we've got there for that particular mm. set of guidance, um, but that an injection of water is cheaper and easier than um, an anaesthetist to do an epidural. But I'm using it as an example of how we wouldn't say that for a hip replacement. We wouldn't say squeeze a comb. So what do we do to fix it? We shout about it first and in doing so, and there's a lot of good work being done by charities like Wellbeing of Women, that um, when we talk about it, that means that that makes us recognise that there is a need to go and do the research and to then fix it. And these things take time. Um, But for a patient out there saying, but I'm one of them not being taken seriously, you've got to go back. You've got to go back and you've got to ask. And that doesn't mean that you go in guns blazing for a battle. You know, 
I'm not saying remotely that, that we do that, but that you go in politely and say, who else can I ask? What else can be done? Great. Dr. Philippa Kay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Last week, the Mail on Sunday's resident GP, Dr. Ellie Cannon, asked female readers to get in contact if they, like Naga, had experienced medical sexism. She received a torrent of emails from women who had experienced similar things, some historic, some all too recent. I spoke to one of these women yesterday, Fiona Jackson, a 58-year-old from Coventry. I started by asking her about the first time she had a bad experience with the NHS. And she told me it began in 2014 with a coil fitting, which did not go to plan. It was um, a very difficult procedure. The GP really, you know, had a hard time of it as well as me. And um, she eventually was successful and said she made it very clear to me that five years down the line, um, I would need to have that removed by the hospital, probably under anaesthetic, um, because if it was that bad going in, then it was going to be 100 times worse coming out. So um, she left it. She was very clear on that. And um, and so I sadly she left and um, we kind of had to skip forward then seven years with delays from COVID, unfortunately. Mm. And, and I knew at that point then that in September... 2021 that I had to get something done about it because we were seven years down the line so things were getting better worse. I asked her what exactly made the first coil fitting so difficult? Oh it was uh, blood loss, um, pain, I actually fainted um, during the procedure and um, and, and the the doctor herself she was a, a wonderful lady you know and she was so nice and and it was not it was not a crisis, and she was the trained medical professional within that practice to do that procedure. That's how they operated. I don't know if that's a uniform thing, but she was the designated um, GP that was trained to do that. And it was just unfortunate because of my um, medical history, infertility, and and so on, um, that and a, and a history of endometriosis that. In hindsight, you know, she probably shouldn't have attempted it, but she did. And you get to the point where, look, you know, let's just battle through this. But I left that surgery in a wheelchair that day I because I was so ill by the, the procedure that they had to, they, they put me in a wheelchair to wheel me out to the car. It was horrible. And, you know, and because of the the nature of, of I think, gynecology in general, because women um, are designed to produce children and to withstand those kind of, you know, that kind of pain and it, that therefore there is a perception, look, just go home. And if I was told to take ibuprofen once, I was told a dozen times, go home, take some ibuprofen, you'll be all right. And so I, I did exactly that. And because that's the way we're conditioned, isn't it? And when you come forward seven years, um, it would, in my experience, nothing had changed, sadly. I was shocked by this story. The idea of someone actively putting off medical treatment for seven years. I asked if she was nervous about going back. Oh, my God, yes. Because, but I, but I went in with an element of confidence to begin with because I knew I had a backstory and I knew I had a very simple, because I'm not frightened of, you know, of asking. And I went into that consultation in 2021 presenting it, look, this has happened, we're overdue, we need to get it, but I know that I have to go to the hospital to have it done. 
that's you know this is because um so i you know that's i was quite confident fiona told me the only reason she had the confidence to go back was because she'd been given a note by a female gp instructing the next person who carried out the coil fitting on how to do it so she told me how it went i was met with um I don't think even think it was a locum. I think it was a registrar, but the practice um, often had rotating um, locums and, and registrars going in for experience. And he was a young guy. I would have said he was around 30, something like that, you know, something like that. And um, and I went in and I, I'd got two things to ask him. One was for help with HRT and one was to refer me to the hospital for the removal of the coil. And he sort of looked at me and says, oh, no, we do that in the surgery. And I said, yes, I know you would do. I said, however, and explained. And um, and then suddenly he just said, well, well, no, we won't, we can't do that. No, no, no. He said, you'll have it done in the practice. It'll be absolutely fine. And I said, well, respectfully, I, I don't think it will be. You know, I, I don't wish to be negative. But I thought, yeah, you know, you should have seen it <laughs> seven years ago, you know. And um, he said, no, 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 the, uh, the practice nurse here is more than capable of doing it. So, uh, so make an appointment when you go out and she will, you know, she will do it for you. And at that point then, I started to, that's when the, your, you feel your credibility is ebbing away. His response to that was to send me a link by text and to tell me to read the information and decide which pathway I wanted to go on and then come back to them when I'd done that. But I think the real killer in that in that whole consultation was when I started to talk about the HRT um, and various, you know, things within me, biological things that I felt that, you know, I was kind of perimenopausal or maybe I wasn't, didn't know. And he looked me up and down and I can see his face doing it now. And he looked me up and down and he said, surely, he said, you're postmenopausal at your age. And he turned away from me and I... I'm sure there was a smirk on his face. And at that point then, I was furious. <laughs> and so I said to him, I just said, I'm going to give you some advice for the rest of your career. Um, don't ever underestimate a 54-year-old woman. I said, or indeed, any woman. Don't ever do that again. And um, and he looked at me. And to be, to be fair to him, he was mortified, you know, and he did apologise. And when I left... When we parted company, um, he apologised again. Fiona went back a week later and things deteriorated further still. There's one thing I will say there that's very important that it isn't just male doctors. You know, I have to, I have to say that because when the coil was removed, the nurse was unable to do it and a female GP came in and she very briskly, oh my goodness, you know, this is straightforward, you know, and proceeded to break the coil off. And half was left in me and I was left there bleeding and in pain. Um, having prefaced that by saying to me, because I was obviously very tense at that point and in considerable pain with the call having been broken off, she then said to me, look, Fiona, you're sorry, I said my name. You are not helping yourself because you're so tense. You need to calm down. So it is not just men. Um, it is most definitely women as well. And men, I would say, in some ways, you could think, oh, well, because you don't know, because you've never experienced those kind of symptoms, maybe you can't have an understanding because it's a very, it's a unique pain. 
I don't care what anybody says, it's totally different to anything else in your body. So we'll forgive them that. But a woman not knowing that um, and treating you in that way is inexcusable. And I do believe that the foundation to it is that, as I alluded to earlier on, we are biologically intended to, you know, to produce a child and the, you know, the, in some ways, the, the process of that, you know, going through that pain, but, you know, this, this fashion for women, um, not having interventions, you know, not having an epidural and just having a bit of gas in there. And it's a wonderful experience for you. There's this, you know, this whole ethos around it, which fosters that belief and perception that women should just be able to put up with it. And you really are being a wimp, you know. <laughs> and that is, on that day, that is how I was made to feel. I was made to feel a wimp. I was made to feel that I was making a fuss about nothing. When in actual fact, a medical procedure had gone quite wrong there and actually left me exposed to infection. I was bleeding. And she knew, she knew it was a problem and she knew she'd done wrong. And she phoned the local hospital to see, should I go to A&E? And they dismissed it equally as quickly. Um, and said, no, no, if, if, if you're still bleeding in 24 hours, come back down. Imagine that, you know, if she's still bleeding in 24 hours, tell her to come to A&E. So I went home with my ibuprofen again and, um, and I put up with it again. And, uh, but because the waiting list was so long, she agreed. The only, the only positive outcome was that she agreed that I had to go to the hospital to have it removed. But the waiting list was so long. I intend in the end I used my insurance and uh, so so just so in by way of balance the female gynecologist I then came across a couple of months later who um, had to remove it under general anaesthetic she said it should never have been attempted it was scar tissue there was a risk of bleeding I had to be anaesthetized because if they had ruptured something um, by too much force then they couldn't have controlled the bleeding so it was a very serious situation and she um, dealt with all of it and it all turned out okay. So, so you know, I'm okay, thank God. That's all for this week on Medical Minefield. You can read all about this and other health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format or the Mail Plus app or mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back with another episode next week. See you then.